Good morning, church. Um, happy to be here with you this morning. Um, I'm probably going to say it every time I get up here um, that I am glad that that is now a regular part of our liturgy, that we uh, come together in worship and song and then we remain standing and have the word of God just read over us. Um, for those of you that feel like you're trying to get to where the scriptures are and it's not on the screen, you can blame me. Uh, I told Britton not to put it up there. Don't get mad at him. That's on me. Um, it's on purpose because genuinely it's the word of God being read over us and it's a good thing. And so I want, to, I want us to be able to just sit in that. Um, so my name is Brett Ferris. I am one of the elders here. I'm not the normal preacher if you're new with us, um, so bear with me, but um, it's God's word and God's word is good all by itself and so um, it's going to be a good morning. Um, now if you will though, take out your copy of the scriptures with me and open them to Luke chapter 5. We're continuing this morning in our study of the gospel according to Luke and if you remember, we're fairly early in the stages of Jesus' public ministry. We heard last week Sean taught on the story of the man who was paralyzed um, because of the crowd that was surrounding Jesus as he taught the man was not able to get into Jesus' presence. And so uh, he was carried onto the roof so that he could be lowered down through the ceiling to get into Jesus' presence. And then Jesus does two things right then and there on the spot. One, he forgives the man's sins right then and there. And then two, he makes his body whole. He heals him completely so that a man who had been paralyzed for years, whose muscles had atrophied, whose brain was no longer wired to be able to tell his legs to move, was able to walk away from that place. And then the week before that, uh, we read about a man with leprosy who saw Jesus and approached Jesus begging him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus says to the man, be clean. And then he points him to the priest so that he could go and make an offering uh, at the synagogue because previously he was considered unclean and was unable to go and participate in the ritual sacrifice to be forgiven of his sins and to be cleansed. And so um, we also see Jesus calling his first disciples in a miraculous way and in the catching of the fish, he calls Simon, he calls the brothers James and John. Um, and and I'm, I'm continuing to back us up on purpose because I want to back all the way up to uh, chapter 4, starting in verse uh, 17. Uh, th this is Jesus in the synagogue in his hometown of Nazareth. Where people, they, they knew him, they knew who he was, they knew his family, they knew Jesus as the person. However, they did not know who Jesus was, like we do here looking into the scripture. They didn't know that he was God. And so Jesus is given the opportunity to read from one of the scrolls, which is a normal thing in the time. And um, he's handed the scroll of Isaiah and Luke tells us that Jesus chooses the passage that he's going to read. And so he reads this in verse 18. Jesus reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And Luke doesn't write like novel writers today where he he gives us tone that Jesus said in a certain way. It doesn't say that. But we can see a little bit into it by how people respond and react because Jesus sits down and everybody is just amazed. And so it tells us that Jesus is reading this passage with authority as if to say, this is me. And so two things happen here that I want to point out. One is just that, what Jesus does. And then the other has to do with Luke and how he writes. So in this passage, just like I said, Jesus is, is saying that day, by reading this passage, that that day in him, with authority, he is Messiah. Jesus reads this and says, declares that he is the messianic king bringing the good news of God's kingdom. And then second is, is, is to see what Luke is doing. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three give this account of Jesus in his hometown synagogue. But what Luke uniquely highlights are the social implications of Jesus's mission. It says that Jesus brings freedom for the prisoners and for the oppressed. It's the Greek word aphasis, which literally translated means release. And it's referring to the ancient Jewish practice of the year of Jubilee that's described in Leviticus 25. It's when all Israelite slaves were released People's debts were canceled. Lands that were sold are returned back to families. It is the symbolic reenactment of God's liberating justice and mercy. And then Jesus says that this good news of release is specifically for who? The poor. And this word poor here is used to describe more than just people who don't have much money. Right? It refers to those of low social status in the culture. People with disabilities, the elderly. It would include social outsiders, people that were of other ethnic groups. And it would also include people who have made poor life choices that have placed them outside of the accepted, acceptable religious circles. And so Jesus says that God's kingdom is especially good news for those people. That's the main theme of Luke's gospel. Luke chooses to write about the accounts that he selects to highlight for the reader that main theme. That God's kingdom brought about through Messiah Jesus Christ is for the poor, for the marginalized, and for the outcast. And it's the very theme that we've seen in the passages that we've covered in recent weeks. And it's the same theme that we're going to see on full display today as we unpack Jesus' calling of Levi into both the family of God and into Jesus' public ministry. So with that in mind, let's get into Luke chapter 5, verses 27 through 32, but not before we go to the Lord together in prayer. So please, will you pray with me and will you pray for me as we enter into God's word together? Heavenly Father, God, you are good. I pray, God, that your name would be hallowed here in this place this morning. God, thank you for the opportunity to come together and to worship you through song, to come together and worship you uh, in community, and now to continue to worship you uh, as we look into your word. And so I pray that that is what we do here 
this morning, Father, that we would worship you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as Brandon Pender read, this story is about a tax collector named Levi. And we know him more commonly by his other name, Matthew. So it can be a little confusing, it's, but it's really not all that uncommon in the Bible for people to have two names. We, we're very familiar with Simon, who's also called Peter. Um, we, we know of Saul, who's also called Paul. And here we see Levi is Matthew. Matthew is Levi. And we do the same thing, right? And it, it just doesn't quite get lost in the translation as much here. If somebody uh, was in Mexico City, for example, he would introduce himself as Juan. Makes sense, right? If he came here to the Woodlands, Texas, and introduced himself as John, we wouldn't have any problem with that. Same, same dude, right? Um, Translation makes it easier here. It's the same, same person. So um, the only difference I would call out, though, is that in the ancient Near East, uh, there was incredible meaning attached to someone's name, such that the use of a name could be uh, intentionally pointing to a part of someone's character. So it is interesting to point out that both Mark and Luke use the Hebrew name Levi, but in his own account of this story, Matthew refers to himself using the Greek Matthew, which means gift of Yahweh. So there's definitely something to study there and look into. I don't have time to do it this morning. So put that in your list of uh, things to study in your free time. But for this morning's sake, uh, there's a good chance I'm going to go back and forth using both names. Just know this story is about one person. So that said, what is massively important and significant and that we are going to look into thoroughly is what Matthew was, the tax collector. The story takes place in the city of Capernaum, which sits on the edge, the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And at the time, Rome ruled the world. And Israel was an occupied country. That occupation included military presence. And it included taxation of the occupied country. Capernaum is a Jewish city in Galilee under Roman occupation under the rule of a man named Herod Antipas. And Herod Antipas was put in power by Rome over Galilee and he would be responsible for sending money and sending goods back from his region to Rome to fund the empire and its continued attempt to basically take over the world. And so to do that, Herod Antipas would sell tax franchises to people that were native to the region, to locals in the region. And now I have a little bit of personal uh, experience with franchises. Uh, I own one, and I can tell you that to, to sell franchises, it's, it's got to be attractive. You've got to make it attractive to be able to get franchisees to buy in. And the way to make it attractive uh, is to make it where people can make money doing it. And so the way that people made money doing it is the Roman government would establish an amount to be paid at the end of the year. They would declare an amount, and that's what they expected. And then the tax collectors would keep anything over and above that number. And so it opened this massive window of opportunity, this massive door of opportunity for these tax collectors to just squeeze and squeeze and squeeze everything they could out of the people that they were taxing because they had a number and then it was unlimited as to what they could take beyond that and it would go straight to their pockets and then so they would squeeze and squeeze and tax and tax and take and take and then when somebody couldn't pay they'd become a lender 
They'd become a loan shark. And so they would, they would offer to loan that person the money to be able to pay the debt back at a ridiculous interest rate. And then when that person couldn't pay it off, they had the backing of the Roman government, the Roman military. They had thugs that would go out and they would get what was theirs. These were not good people. So to be a tax collector, you had to be a few things. You had to be a cheater, had to be a thief, had to be willing to take more than was expected, had to be greedy, had to want more. You also had to be willing to turn your back on your Jewish heritage because these tax collectors were Jewish. They were native to the region. And by saying yes to this, they are now part of the Gentile authority, placing this taxation burden on the Jewish people, on their own people. So they're giving away their birthrights. They're turning their backs on their families. Somewhere along the line, Matthew signed up. Somewhere along the line, Matthew says, yep, I'm good with that. And so he sentenced himself to a life of association with thugs and enforcers and other tax collectors like himself. They were ceremonially unclean. They were were not going anywhere near the synagogue. And so there were two kinds of tax collectors. Okay, there were the Gabai, G-A-B-B-A-I, and these were the general tax collectors. These were the ones that were taking the, the, the kind of the fixed taxes, the, the income tax, the property tax. This was kind of, you can think of this as the institution. Okay, this was the, the large institution, uh, the Gabai, the Gabai. This is, Zacchaeus was part of the Gabai, we'll, we'll read about in the weeks to come. The second kind of tax collector was called the Mokus. M-O-K-H-E-S, the MOCUS. And the MOCUS were responsible for taking the day-to-day taxes. This was the package tax, the market tax, the, the axle tax, the wheel tax, the road tax, every kind of tax you can imagine. You're walking down the street and, and you get the I stepped on that rock tax. This was the MOCUS who was taking these taxes. And even then inside of the MOCUS it was split into two separate Groups. There was the great mocus and then there was the little mocus. And so the great mocus was essentially someone who had uh, a large franchise. They had um, employees. They had people working for them. They had multiple outposts set up in a region and were able to uh, collect from multiple locations. They ran the organization. And then there was the little mocus. And if you were a little mocus, you were inside the actual tax booth. You're the one that's looking these people straight in the eye, face to face. You're the one who's actually exchanging hands. You're the one taking. You're the one sitting in the tax booth. And where do we find Matthew? Sitting at the tax booth. Matthew was a little mocus. These were the most hated of all of the tax collectors because these were the ones that they put the face with. They associated the little mocus, the Matthews of the world, with the oppression and with the burden. See, the hatred was twofold. They, were, they, were, they, were, they hated them because they were being cheated and squeezed and oppressed by the tax collectors. But then two, they were being betrayed by their own people. 
These were their own people. These were Jews from their same town that were doing this to them. These were, these were the, the people that they had grown up with that were acting like Gentiles. They were acting like the enemy. And I've heard this, this taught before. I've heard this framed up before. People will uh, bring the analogy of the IRS, which makes sense, right? Like today we, we, we can feel that, that we don't like the IRS. Um, but it doesn't quite, doesn't quite land. I, I even thought like uh, there's a hatred like, uh, like, like, like Longhorns hate Sooners, right? Or like Aggies hate Longhorns. Um, but it doesn't quite do it. And so as I was studying this, I heard a, a, a teacher and a theologian share a personal story that, that I want to share with you. He was um, in Holland in the, the mid-1960s studying um, and he was staying at a, a house, renting a room from uh, someone who owned a home there in Holland, in the Netherlands. And he goes out and he's on his way back to the house. And as he passes down the sidewalk, as he gets close to the home, he passes by a, an elderly woman. He's an American guy. He's uh, polite, says hi, makes eye contact, has a nice cordial interchange with this woman, um, says goodbye and goes about his way. She's a little bit oddly glowing, um, just excited that he would stop and be friendly and talk to her. And so this man goes back to the house that he's staying at and is met by the, the landlady, the owner of the home, who lights him up. She's livid that he would talk to that woman. And he's like, I'm a little taken aback by it, doesn't quite understand what the big deal is. He was just being nice. But she says, how can you even speak to that woman? And she goes on to tell him a story about how in the early 1940s, during World War II, the Netherlands and Holland, where she lived, was an occupied country. They were occupied by Nazi Germany. And the Germans had a, a, a law, a rule in place where they could and would find young 18 to 23-year-old men, uh, Dutch men, and they would deport them back to Germany to work in these labor camps, to essentially be slave labor, to drive the, the German engine to continue taking over. And so she tells the story that she and her neighbor had a young son each. And so uh, what they did was they cleared out any evidence in the home of, of these boys and they dug in the living room floor a hole, a hole big enough to be able to fit two 18-year-old boys, put some blankets and pillows in there to make it comfortable just in case, and they covered it up and hid it. And one day knock on the door comes, and she opens the door. German soldiers push their way through, make their way into the house. They go into the back room looking for evidence of these young men. They don't find any, and so they come back looking through the house and come back into the living room, and there's a group of them, and so uh, a couple of them pull out their weapons and start firing bullets into the floor all across the room. 
And another one that's in charge just stands there and watches the lady, watches to see how she reacts. She stands. I mean, I'm sure, she, I'm sure everybody reacts to gunfire, but she stands un, unfazed. And the Germans put their weapons away. They're satisfied with, with her reaction. They're satisfied with no one being there, and they move on. As soon as the door closes, she frantically runs to uncover the hole that was hidden, opens the trap door to find her son and their neighbor in the hole, hiding unscathed by the bullets. But could you imagine the trauma that she felt in that moment? Could you imagine what it's like to know that your child is hidden in the floor as bullets fly around it? And to know that you can't react because any reaction you give would jeopardize their life? Could you imagine the, the feeling when you open the doors and they're okay? Like, I, I, that gets me shaky a little bit. But then she tells the man that the reason that the Germans entered her home was because that woman that he had just spoken to was a collaborator. And that woman had given the Germans information as to where they could find these young men. And it was that woman that pointed those soldiers to her home. So now, imagine the feeling inside, right? He tells this story 20 years later, and it hadn't gone away. It hadn't lightened up. She hated her neighbor. That's the level, just a little bit of the level of hatred that these Jews felt for these tax collectors. That's Matthew. All right? So, we read in verse 27 of Luke chapter 5 that Jesus passes by Levi. And he looks at him. And the Greek word used here for looking at him is theaomai. And it means to view attentively. It's used of important people that are looked on with admiration. This is how Jesus looks at Matthew in this moment. And it's not as if Jesus was just walking down the street and Jesus sees Matthew for the first time or Matthew sees Jesus for the first time either. Matthew would have been at his tax booth in that same spot every day. And Jesus had spent some time in Capernaum. He is, he's essentially setting Capernaum up as his central location uh, of operation. And so it's likely that Jesus would have passed by Matthew's tax booth many times before that moment. It's also very likely that Matthew was at least somewhat familiar and aware of what had been going on with Jesus. See, we know there was a buzz in the region in Capernaum about because Luke tells us that crowds are gathering and starting to follow Jesus around. Word is spreading. And Matthew would have heard people talking. They wouldn't be talking to him. But he would have heard people talking about Jesus and the claims that he's making and the things he's doing. And so, although we don't have a record of Matthew and Jesus meeting prior to this encounter, there is likely some human familiarity. But there is most certainly divine, invent, divine intention. And so with two simple words, Jesus says so much. And with one eight-word English sentence, so much happens in the life of Matthew. Jesus says what? Follow me. And then in verse 28, it says, And leaving everything, 
Matthew rose and followed him. So of all the people in the world that Jesus could pick to be one of his closest followers, he chose Matthew. Like quite possibly the most hated man in all of Capernaum. Jesus says, you know what? You're exactly what I'm looking for. Why? Because Matthew was a man who understood exactly how sinful he was. See, Jesus knew Matthew's heart in the moment. He didn't just see Matthew's sinfulness. He saw Matthew's brokenness and his hunger and thirst for righteousness. And I don't know if Matthew had been wrestling with this sinfulness, if he had been wrestling with his lifestyle for some time and that was the breaking point that he needed. Don't know if it happened instantly in the moment, but it doesn't really matter. Because in that moment, he recognized it and he left it all behind. He left it behind. He rose and he followed Jesus. And it's interesting to note that in his own account of this story, Matthew leaves that part out. He leaves out the part about leaving it all behind and he simply says that he followed him. And maybe it's implied, but some say that it's an indication of Matthew's humility. That, that years later, when he writes of this event, that he doesn't want to point to what he had to sacrifice, but he wants to make much of Jesus and the beauty of following him as Lord. Matthew leaves everything. See, he's already left his own people behind. Like any family or friends that he may have, have had before becoming a tax, a tax collector, uh, we've, we know they're gone. It's been made very clear uh, that they would want and have wanted nothing to do with him other than maybe just to beat the tar out of him. Um, but they're gone. And now his new community is basically the, the criminal world. And leaving his tax business behind now, he's no longer provided any financial, he's, no, he's not providing any financial gain for the Roman government. And so any protection that he may have had is gone any power that he may have had is gone. He's already at the lowest of lows. And in that instant, he feels the overwhelming love of Christ and makes the decision to place his entire life in Jesus, which in that moment becomes nothing but his heart and his hands. In that moment, Jesus quite literally becomes everything to Matthew. There was no going back. He couldn't go back. See, like the, the other disciples that Jesus had called, like if this, if this thing went south, they could go back to fishing. They had an out. Matthew had nothing. He had no family. He had no community. Now he has no job, no career, nothing to go back to. He's all in. See, unlike the paralytic and the leper who sought Jesus out, Jesus goes to Matthew and in an instant offers him what the religious culture said he would never be able to have because he was so far beyond unclean that he would never be forgiven. And in an instant, Jesus offers him forgiveness. He offers him salvation from a life and a heart of wickedness and he offers him a path forward that will last for eternity. Matthew understood why Jesus came. He understood what freedom for the poor meant because he was the poorest of the poor. On my, on my way here this morning, I was listening to the radio. The song Run to the Father came on. 
and, and the lyric, it, it says, I don't have a context for that kind of love. I don't understand. And it just hit me. Matthew has, absolutely has a context for that kind of love. And so right now in this moment, in this part of the story, I want to pose a question to be able to come back to later. But right now, in this moment, where were you when Jesus called you? Where was your life at when Jesus called you? What was going on in your heart? Put a pin in that question because we'll come back to it. So in response now to his newfound savior, his new rabbi, his new teacher, Luke tells us that Levi throws a party for Jesus. Verse 29. It says, Levi made him a great feast in his house. The NIV calls it a great banquet. The NASB calls it a big reception. Now, if you're going to have a great big banquet in your house, it's very likely that you've got a great big house. And a great big banquet's only great big is if there are a whole lot of people there in attendance, which would require a whole lot of food and drinks, would require a whole lot of money that Matthew clearly had. The scriptures don't tell us specifically how deep Matthew was into his tax collector lifestyle, but he clearly had money. See, Matthew left everything behind, but apparently he still had access to his house. He still had access to his bank account. Uh, And again, in verse 29, Levi made Jesus, him, Jesus, a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. (laughs) Matthew's putting together of his guest list has uh, a couple of layers to it, right? First, he invited the people that he could get to come. Like the only people that would have been willing to come to have dinner in Matthew's house were his co-workers, his fellow tax collectors, his people, people like him. In Matthew's account of the story in Matthew chapter 9, Matthew says that there were many tax collectors and sinners reclining at table. Luke calls them others. He calls them other people, but Matthew calls it straight up what it is. It's a collective group of tax collectors and sinners. There's no comma there that separates them. It's not tax collectors and sinners. It's tax collectors and sinners. It's one group of really bad people. And then the other layer at play here is that I believe Matthew has tasted and seen the redemptive love of Christ. A love that their entire world has declared to be unavailable for a low-life tax collector like him. And that that has all changed for Matthew. And I believe that he would have wanted the others in Capernaum who, by their own choices, yes, but who had never experienced the spiritual cleansing, the spiritual washing away of sins, the same wholeness that we saw in the paralytic. And I believe that Matthew wanted to get his fellow tax collectors in Jesus' presence in hopes that they may experience what he has experienced. Now, this feast would have garnered some attention, right? potentially from Matthew vacating his tax booth the way he did and word getting around. It's also possible that the feast was big enough to spill out of Matthew's house and draw attention in the neighborhood. Could have been that the Pharisees were so worked up by this point that they had eyes on Jesus and his movements at all times. We don't know for sure, but what we do know is that the Pharisees and their scribes were there. Their scribes are just 
a subset of Pharisees. They're basically the subject matter experts of the law. The Pharisees and their scribes were there, and they weren't happy. They couldn't understand. They couldn't reconcile this behavior from Jesus. See, they don't, they don't ask Jesus directly, though, but instead they ask Jesus' disciples, who were present at Matthew's house as well in verse 30. The Pharisees ask, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, I've always just kind of cruised past this part because Jesus is talking and quick to get to what Jesus says after. But settle here for just a second with me. At this point, Jesus' disciples have one thing and one thing only in common with Matthew. They've all decided to follow Jesus. These men are still Jewish. These disciples are still Jewish. They're still the same people who have been extorted by this very group of people that they're now supposed to share a meal with. They're still the same people who were betrayed by these tax collectors and sinners. And there's a a very strong chance that the disciples are struggling, maybe even more than the Pharisees are, to reconcile what's happening right in front of them. Because... They're now in this mission together with Matthew. Perhaps the Pharisees tapped the disciples on the shoulder to ask their question because the disciples are not sitting right at the table by Jesus. Perhaps the disciples are sitting down at the end of the table, stirring, bristling, right? And, and, and the Pharisees are even one step further away, and they're tapping the disciples on the shoulder because Jesus is way over there, surrounded by tax collectors, surrounded by the riffraff. We don't know. But it appears that the Pharisees were close enough to Jesus for him to hear them. So let's flip over to Matthew chapter 9 to see how this plays out, to see Jesus' response because Matthew adds... One thing that Luke leaves out. Pharisees ask the disciples the question, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And um, I would highly encourage you to go back and watch the video of Sean's sermon from last week on YouTube. It's called The Healing and Faith. Go to about the 21-minute mark. Sean gets on a soapbox. It's his words, not mine. He gets on a soapbox about the Pharisees struggling to reconcile the injustice uh, of the lowest of the low receiving God's favor. It's really well said. I'm not going to try to say it again. He says it really well. Go listen to it. Listen to the whole sermon. It's good, but listen to that part specifically. Write it down. 21 minutes. Go to that. It's good. The Pharisees say, why does your teacher eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answers them, not the disciples, but Jesus speaks up. Jesus hears the question asked, and before the disciples answer, Jesus speaks up, and he gives this three-part answer. The first part is an analogy. He says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. He gives the analogy of sick people and a physician, and it's pretty straightforward, right? Like, I don't need to unpack that for you. It's exactly what it says, and it's, it's hard to argue with that, that sick people need a doctor, not people that are well, right? And so, 
Like these, these tax collectors, these sinners are sick people. And so uh, for the Pharisees, like as far as the Pharisees are concerned, who, who Jesus is speaking directly to here, remember, uh, as far as they're concerned, like the, these people in this room with Jesus are physically no different, if not worse than the leper. Spiritually speaking, they're basically dead. <laughs> and so like the, the, the Pharisees define them as sick. And so if the Pharisees could see how sick they were and could see how sinful these other people were, why couldn't they see how important it was that the physician go to them? And so we see a glimpse into just how hard their hearts are, that this straightforward analogy that is, is rational and logical lands completely flat on them. The second part of Jesus' response is a quote from Scripture. Uh, it's quoted out of Hosea, sorry, Hosea. It's quoted out of Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, which says this. It says, For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. See, God wants a heart of mercy, not a legalistic rule follower. The phrase Jesus uses here, he says, go and learn what this means before he quotes the scripture. This is a a rabbinic phrase. It's a phrase that a rabbi would say when rebuking unnecessary ignorance. It was a common phrase. It'd be like us saying, get a clue. Like, how dumb are you? Like, think about it. Don't you know that God wants mercy and not ritual? Don't you know that Jesus wants nothing to do with outward morality and spirituality separated from a heart of penitence? He wants your heart, not your rituals. He wants your heart. And then finally, the third part. Jesus says with personal authority, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. That's the root of the gospel, right there. Jesus brings salvation for sinners. That's the theme that we'll see throughout our study of Luke's gospel. That Jesus came for the sinner. And we're right back where we started this morning with Jesus' reading from the scroll of Isaiah. He has come to proclaim good news to the what? The poor. He is sent to proclaim liberty to the captives, to recover sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to call not the righteous but sinners. Because of Jesus, a tax collector, a thief, and a traitor can go from one day sitting in a tax booth to one day writing the account that would open the entire new Testament. So I'm going to invite the band back up now. And this morning, I want to close by taking a moment to reflect on the story. To reflect on each of the characters in the narrative. 
because the temptation for me is to have like this preconceived idea of how to apply the scripture to your life. Uh, and hear me, there's nothing wrong with the preacher drawing application for the body from scripture. Nothing wrong with that. But this morning, there's a lot going on in a short passage. And I believe that the Holy Spirit can and will move in each of our hearts in his own way this morning. And so I want to take a minute for you to be able to just listen to the Holy Spirit. Matthew had a lot going on in that moment. In in the moment that Jesus looks at him, and in an instant, Matthew feels the weight of his sins and his need for a Savior. And he locks eyes with the Lord Jesus Christ, who says, follow me, and he goes. Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe you're overwhelmed by sin and need to lock eyes with Jesus. Maybe you resonate with the Pharisees this morning, or you're convicted by the Pharisees this morning. Your religious resume, your Christian resume is strong, but your heart's hard. Ask the Holy Spirit to soften your heart today. Or maybe you're like me. You're 20 plus years removed from the moment that Jesus called you. You've been following Jesus for a long time. You hang out with other people who have been following Jesus for a long time. You're studying the deep things of God. But if you're not careful, you can lose sight of the missional part of being a Christ follower. The missional piece that is the theme of Jesus' life in Luke's gospel. So I invite you to consider the question I posed earlier. Where were you when Jesus called you? As a believer in Christ, yes, you were washed clean and you were made righteous through the blood of Jesus. But on this side of heaven, there will still be sin in your life. And you still need the mercy. We, I, you, we still need the mercy and forgiveness of Jesus daily. So just like the poor, just like the marginalized, just like those people in your life that need to see that daily longing in you for your Lord and Savior. So let's take a minute, reflect, let the Holy Spirit do what the Holy Spirit does, and then Zach's going to lead us as we continue to worship.